Welcome to Talk About Poetry, where working poets gather to discuss poems they like, are impressed by, are annoyed by, or otherwise engaged by. This is the first of two podcasts on the extraordinary and highly honored poet Gwendolyn Brooks, a poet and a teacher with a wide effect on American arts. She received the Pulitzer Prize, she was on a U.S. postage stamp, she became the namesake of at least nine and probably more institutions, from grammar schools to cultural centers. She was the first black author to win the Pulitzer and the first black woman to hold the position of poetry consultant to the Library of Congress, which is in effect the U.S. Poet Laureate. She is unique with a strong commitment to racial identity and equality and a mastery of poetic techniques. I'm Bob Hers, publisher and editor of Nine Mile Magazine, which you can find online at ninemile.org, of the Nine Mile Talk About Poetry blog, which you can also find online, and of the Nine Mile Press, publisher of books by David St. John, James Cervantes, Michael Burkhart, Sam Pereira, and many others. Nine Mile Books and Magazine are the sponsors of this podcast. Our other Talk About Poetry participants today are here at the table, and I invite them to introduce themselves. We also have a special guest with us, important to this discussion, Koresh Ali Lansana, former director of the Gwendolyn Brooks Center for Black Literature and Creative Writing at Chicago University. But first, our other participants, Georgia. Hi, Bob. Thanks. And hello to everyone listening. This is Georgia Popoff. I'm a poet in central New York based in Syracuse, where I coordinate workshops for the Downtown Writers Center at the YMCA, our Writer's Voice chapter, and teaching community. And my most recent book is published in 2015 by Tiger Bark Press, and it's called Salter, the Agnostics Book of Common Curiosities. And it's already won an award, right? You should make note it, of that. It did, make, it did win an award, People's Choice Award at the Central New York Book Awards of 2015. Thanks, A Bob. wonderful night and a wonderful award, so yeah, much deserved. Thank you. Yeah. Steve? I'm Steve Cusisto. I'm a poet, essayist, memoirist, blogger, and a human rights activist. I teach at Syracuse University. I'm the author of two collections of poems, Only Bread, Only Light, and Letters to Borges, both available from Copper Canyon Press, and also uh, the author of two memoirs, Planet of the Blind, and an odd book called Eavesdropping, where I wander around the world and listen to landscapes sightseeing by ear. Uh, and also a co-editor and co-publisher of the whole Nine Mile Venture, the books, the magazine, the blogs, the podcasts, and all of it. So uh, therefore a co-sponsor of the podcast. Georgia, uh, I wonder if you might introduce our guest. Certainly. It's my honor and delight to uh, invite, when we invited Koresh Ali Lansana to the table to talk about Miss Brooks. Koresh and I met in 1995 at the Asheville Poetry Festival. We've been friends ever since. We've co-authored a book on poetry and public education called Our Difficult Sunlight. And we are now working on... Uh, the Whiskey of Our Discontent, an anthology of essays on the impact of Gwendolyn Brooks mm. through five lenses. We'll talk more about that, but her impact uh, uh, in discussing race, class, gender, community, and of course the craft of poetry because she's such an amazing poet. Koresh has had a very close personal relationship as well as uh, a teaching relationship with Ms. Brooks, and he's given me the opportunity to know her work in a different way. Koresh is originally from Enid, Oklahoma. He traveled a lot of the country with Poetry Alive as a younger poet. 
He has worked for three or four of the major textbook companies in uh, the States. He did his MFA at New York University and then went back to Chicago State where he completed his bachelor's and studied with Miss Brooks and wound up while he was there, not only teaching in their MFA program, but also directing the Gwendolyn Brooks Center. And he's also been very active in third world press, a lot of community work. He's the author of, is it five collections of Poetry Q? Um, eight. Eight. Sorry, I lost track. Uh, <laughs> keep, keep up. <laughs> keep up. I'll work on it. Um, Eight collections of poetry. He's edited more than 12 anthologies. He is now spearheading an initiative for Miss Brooks Centennial in 2017. So with that, I'd like to introduce everybody, my friend Q, Quraysh Ali Lansana. Welcome. It's, it's a pleasure to be here with, with all of you. I'm uh, happy to be here in central New York uh, to hang out with you all and talk about poetry and Miss Brooks in specific. So thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being here. I'm very excited about this program. Uh, and this program, we thought maybe to focus on the biography and the clear and huge cultural significance sure. of Gwendolyn Brooks. And the program to follow, we want to focus on some of her poems and get into tighter readings and, and thinking about them. Uh, just as a first question and maybe to start us off, if you look at her career, it's not that she's two different people, but there is right. one kind of an emphasis or significance in her in her work and her poetry and her creative work prior to, let's say, the late 60s. Sure. Right? And mm -hmm. got the, we have the Pulitzer in 1950, 51. That's correct, 50. And then, mm -hmm. and then a kind of poetry that's growing in significance. And then in the late 60s, something happens. Sure. And, and things seem to change from there. Right. Maybe you could talk about some of that a bit. Sure. What happened, um, as a way to, to enter the conversation, what happened is that in 1967, she attended the Fisk University Black Writers Conference, the first Black Writers Conference at Fisk, um, where both she and the uh, very remarkable poet Robert Hayden were sort of the elders uh, in the room. And in that very interesting moment for, for literature and certainly for African-American literature in between uh, the end of the, uh, the Harlem Renaissance and prior, just at the, the nexus of the black arts movement, right, the black power movement. Mm -hmm. um, so Hayden and Miss Brooks represented sort of the, the elders in that moment, in some ways the indirect grandchildren of Richard Wright, but not quite. Um, and so when Miss Brooks um, attended Fisk, uh, the conference at Fisk, she met an upstart, uh, Leroy Jones, who uh, thereafter, shortly thereafter became known as you know, Imamu Amiri Baraka. Um, she met a, a young Don L. Lee, who shortly thereafter became Hakeem Madabudi. And so she was introduced, she met Mama Sonia Sanchez, um, all of them very young um, in their poetry, very young in their activism, but very committed to changing the conversation, um, emboldened by uh, the Black Panthers, um, by some of the work of SNCC, SCLC, um, and what was happening in terms of the conversation regarding race and class and culture in this country. And so she met uh, Leroy Jones and Don L. Lee and heard their work. And, and Mama Nikki Giovanni, also young and a Fisk student there at the time. Um, and it opened her eyes to uh, 
to consider or reconsider what she was doing with her own work. Now, um, I'll stop there for a second. We'll come back to this. And, and, and I will argue, and I have taught for many years, that Ms. Brooks's work has always been revolutionary. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, particularly uh, from, from, from her first book, From a Street in Bronzeville, uh, up until this pivot, we call it, right, in, in literati. Um, from a Street in Bronzeville, giving revolutionary voice to women, to African-American women in specific, but certainly to women, um, and how she took what Langston Hughes had initiated um, in terms of distilling um, Black life in, in, in what she called, you know, finding the extraordinary in the ordinary, right? That's her phrase. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Great then taking phrase. Richard Wright's naturalism, um, and uh, or sorry, we'll call it African-American naturalism, right? And furthering it, and in ways that hadn't been experienced in really prior to this moment. Uh, certainly not in poetry, certainly not in verse. And so there are there are, there, are, there are a couple of major poets, including a Pulitzer Prize winner, who wrote that in uh, after 67, she dumbed down her art to reach a black audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, he will he will remain nameless. Mm-hmm. But um, he but it's it's well documented. It's a published book. I confronted him on it in 2003. But um, the argument being that yes, her work became after that Fisk conference in 67, her work became more overtly for by and about black people, which was the mantra of the black arts movement in concert with the black power movement. And when she made this, but when she made the decision to leave Harper and Row and publish with Broadside Press, Dudley Randall's Press in Detroit, a black publisher, and then Third World Press, her legacy, her fortune, the scholarships surrounding her work suffered because of that decision. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I have to say, and I'm interrupting your narrative a little sure. bit, but but I thought that was among many extraordinary moments in her life. Uh, that was clearly one of the extraordinary pieces to leave your major publisher with your major audience mm-hmm. and say, "Look, I am now going to invest my energies and my creative work and my poetry into the building of this community." That's right. With, with not only not only with black publishers, but also she sponsored awards herself. That's correct. Right. With, without a lot of mm-hmm. money. With, with her own money. With her own money. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and and did it, was was that a successful effort? I mean, what? How, how do you view that? The, did she succeed in building in Chicago locally or regionally well, a, a community in that way, or was it? Yeah, I think so, but I think that depends on you know defining success is subjective, right? <laughs> um, I, I think I do think she did um, in many many ways. Um, certainly, her Youth Poet Laureate awards um, are a testament to something that you know she she presented awards, monetary awards, and certificates to young people. From all over the state of Illinois, you know, she judged those contests herself and wrote those checks herself, right? Um, and did that for all 33 years she was poet laureate of the Amazing. state of Illinois. Um, certainly, her one of her greatest legacies is how she nurtured uh, young black writers and all young writers, really. Yeah. Um, yep. And certainly that that aspect of of who she is would would speak to your question as well. It's a it's an incredible legacy and an incredible effort. I mean, it truly is. Georgia or Steve, do you have questions at all? Because I, I want to ask about the foundation, the founding of the center, also. But yeah, Steve. go keep going. Okay, that's great. So, how do talk about the center? 
Okay. Also, if you would. Um, well, um, it's a wonderful story, by the way, and thank you for oh, sharing. Sure. I'm happy to be here, and I love talking about Miss Brooks. She changed my life. Right? Were you, she, you one of her, you were her last protege? I was her last protege. I am her last protege, yeah. So when uh, Donnell Lee uh, went to Iowa, <laughs> right, <laughs> where he met you, Steve, and got his first uh, tenure track teaching position at Chicago State University, um, he... Uh, fought to create an institutional home for Miss Brooks, mm-hmm. a place for the study of her work, uh, to build an endowed chair for her. And this is one thing that I've been thinking about as of late. It'd be interesting with with a group of poets and scholars to, to to have this conversation, right? Um, he, Baba Haki had to fight with the administration to create an endowed chair for the first Black Pulitzer Prize recipient. Right? Yeah, you would think that would be a slam dunk. Yeah, right? right? I think. (laughs) And in that, and to create the endowed chair and then this this center. Um, and thinking about for a moment, she she loved Chicago. She she Chicago. I mean, she was born in Kansas. She lived there for three months, but she's essentially a Chicagoan. She did not want to leave Chicago. Um, but and she didn't. She had some offers, but she didn't have many offers in terms of academic positions. Post um, making that decision to leave Harper and Row, which is another fascinating for 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 the three of us in the room. You're an academic too, but for the three of us in the room and who have actually experienced the well, you know, I'm sorry for the four of us in the room who have experienced academia in its beauty and its ugliness. Um, it's quite fascinating to think about um, that a woman of uh, a person of this stature who'd earned these remarkable uh, trinkets and credentials would have difficulty finding a tenured or tenure track position. But that has everything to do in many ways with 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 what race and class is and gender is in this country, right? Um, so, and still is. And still right. is. Yeah, right? exactly. Yep. And still yep. is. That's right. So. Um, so when Baba Haki built the center for her and, and created the endowed chair position for her, she had she was floating around doing sort of what you'd really call glorified adjunct work. Again, a Pulitzer Prize recipient yeah. Yeah. <laughs> doing glorified adjunct work um, for uh, and touring. You know, certainly her speaking engagements didn't wane too much. But when she walked away from Harper and Row, and she really very overtly signed on to Black arts movement, Black power uh, philosophies. She took a ding professionally from from academia, from literati, right? Sort of a a question mark was placed upon her. And then you have, again, you have others writing, well, she, her art changed. She dumbed down her art to reach a Black audience. Um, That she is her, she has made a conscious decision to dilute or diminish her own powers. To reach a black audience, like it's, it, I mean, what do you, what do you all think about that? I mean, just how does that sit with you? Because I've think, been struggling with it for thirty years I or think, so. I think three things right off the top of my head. One, one is that um, regardless of race or gender mm-hmm. or ability, you know, for radio listeners, I'm blind. Uh, there is a sensibility in academic poetry mm-hmm. that argues that if you write idiomatically in the way that William Carlos Williams chose to do, to sure. write so that anyone in his neighborhood could read those poems. Uh, there is an archness to the academic establishment, right? Uh, 
that says he's dumbed it down, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. Uh, for the average, you yep. know, the average reader. Okay. Right? And that runs across the spectrum of academic discourse about poetry, right? That, in other words, the more complicated and difficult and elusive and high-toned the poetry is, the better it is for the academics, sure. right? So sure. um, I would, I'm just thinking that it's not exclusively a question of um, demeaning her as a, as a poet of color, mm-hmm. Though it is, it certainly is, but it's also what they do, right? In other sure. words, they reach sure. into the, you know, uh, the, the, the weapon is near at hand. Yeah. Ah, she's writing for more, you know, more readers. Therefore, we all know that that takes more art, mm-hmm. right? It takes more mm-hmm. art to make the aria sound simple. It takes more That's art right. to make the guitar sound easy. That's right. It mm-hmm. takes more art to make uh, philosophy uh, fit into the local speech right. of uh, of your neighbors. Right. It takes tremendous art to do that. And yet, right, the academic types would, you know, or, they would lean on that. The right. second thing I'm thinking is that is that uh, academic poets have never understood bravery very well. Right? So, uh, and, they, and because they resent it on some level, right, uh, they'll think of all kinds of stuff to say, right? I mean, I remember also... At the roughly the same time period, right? Mm-hmm. The hostility to Robert Bly, sure, um, who you know was organizing the Vietnam poets, the right. wars right. poets against the war. Right. Gave back his uh, National Book Award check mm-hmm. uh, in New York. He gave it to the Vietnam Draft Resistance League, uh, you know, and was uh, you know eschewing the academy and saying, mm-hmm. "If you wanted to be a good poet, don't go to Iowa. Right. Don't don't right. don't don't even teach." You know, uh, live independently. Right. Um, you know, so that's the second thing. Yeah. And then the third thing is, what an amazing thing to be such an honored and absolutely rich and talented and groundbreaking poet to suddenly seek new ground. Yeah. You know, right. sure. that, that she got up one day. It's like a Rilke poem where he says uh, that uh, one day a man gets up and leaves his family and the dishes at the table and the house and just wanders away because there's a church in the east that's mm-hmm. calling to him. Mm-hmm. Right? That that new ground was calling to her. Right. And that was the ground that was rising up all around many, many people. That's correct. Right? That's correct. Right. And so all of that is remarkable to me. I mean, yeah. just like, just and astounding. She refused complacency. You bet. You know, there was no room for that in her work and from what Q has shared with me of his knowing her personally um, that just wasn't in her vocabulary right. anyway right you know and then and there's there's this whole question now in academia about the value of the professor of practice and since you know I, I have not gone the academic route I'm up against that all the time I'm kind of considered quaint by some people and kind of adorable at times you know but I don't think that there's been a long time in my work as a poet that makes me think a lot of what Miss Brooks went through as a black woman gen in a second two generations ahead of me as a woman in letters uh, her struggles were even greater but you know there's if, if you don't come through that pipeline 
you're, it's very easy to be dismissed. Mm -hmm. And if you're a woman who came through that pipeline, it's even it didn't come through that pipeline. It's even easier to be dismissed. I mean, Stephen Dobbins made a comment in print once that no woman will ever create any any poetry of consequence. Well, I beg to differ. Right. Gwendolyn Brooks did it many years before he ever put pen to paper. That's correct. So you know, I have to take that whole comment. <laughs> so wait a minute, wait a minute. I just want to I just want to think Sappho, Emily Dickinson. Yeah, kind of. Uh, Sarah Teasdale. Yeah, I mean, just, we're just like, sweetly. you know, really? You yeah. just like erase them? Yeah, know? erase them. Um, <laughs> yeah, no <laughs> consequence. But there's another thing, too, that I, I'll, yeah. I'll just toss. Thanks, I'll, Steve. I'll, horrible thing yeah. to say. I'll toss yeah, this out. Yeah, what horrible thing to say. Let me just toss this out quickly, too, which is to say that, that uh, you know, in the, in the 40s and 50s in American poetry, um, there was a generalized academic uh, approach to poetry that eschewed the person. Mm -hmm. It is chewed uh, any kind of autobiographical touchstones about the self. Uh, poetry was thought of as owing something to 16th century British literary traditions. Mm -hmm. A poem should be metered and rhymed and elegant and ironic sure. and distanced uh, from the, the nature of the artist who's writing it. And there is a way in which um, poets reacting against that uh, also um, were critiqued by mm -hmm. the older establishment. Right. Uh, and we still get the vestiges of that today, right? That, right. oh, you know, I mean, uh, I hear, are you, a, are you a real poet or a blind poet? Mm -hmm. You know, are, mm -hmm. are you an African-American woman poet or are you a real poet? Right. You know, there's all right. that sort of... Uh, sensibility that still sort of trickles down from that period uh, when, um, you know, the self was to be left out and uh, local politics were to be left out. Right, right. And uh, it takes a great deal of um, mindfulness and faith in the power of literature to transform uh, the local. Right. Uh, and the collective. Yep. Uh, to to turn to turn that to turn that boat around, mm -hmm. and um, we've been lucky, I think, all of us, to mm -hmm. live in an age when some very great poets um, really undertook that, and that's Agreed. really been something that happened over the last fifty years. I agree, right? Mm -hmm. I agree. You know, it's interesting too, uh, Steve, that you, both Steve and Georgia, you just brought this up. I hadn't thought about this quite this way, but it might be something for this anthology, and that is that thinking about Miss Brooks. In context to, um, uh, or in context with, let's say, Dickinson, Plath, mm -hmm. Sexton, mm -hmm. Brooks, Olds. Yep. Right. Yep. Just in terms and of rich. And yeah, and and and, rich. and, and, yeah. and, and, and yeah, Audrey yeah. would have to be in that too. She'd have to be in that. She'd have to be in there. Can I throw an Audrey? And Levertoff would have to be in there. Can I throw an Audrey? Lord would have to be in there as well. Yeah. Okay. But we can make a little club. Yeah, that's of, interesting. These are the people we're going to get in the hot tub with. We're creating a whole tradition now <laughs> as we talk. Yeah, but that's interesting. We're not creating, we're recognizing We're recognizing it. Yeah. I like, I very much like what Steve talked about though. All those separate categories. You know, are you a woman poet? Are you a black right. woman poet? Mm -hmm. Are you a lesbian? Categories of dismissal that, that knock you that's away right. from that's the right. sort of that's right. force Absolutely. of poetry. There's something else that struck me, and you touched on it, Steve, and you've touched on it, Q, and Georgia, you also, uh, in, in the course of her career, and it's that while she was poet laureate, among the things she did, well, she visited schools, but mm -hmm. you would expect mm -hmm. that. Right, right. But drug rehabilitation clinics. Prisons. Prisons. Yeah. 
hospitals. We'd, we yeah. wouldn't know Etheridge Knight. That's if, right. If yeah. she hadn't right. gone to Indiana State Prison. Yep. But, and That's right. Just to we think about that ex- in that extraordinary way and how she breaks through those boundaries, the, those mind-forged manacles, if you will, that uh, Steve was talking about, that you've all talked about. So clearly she saw poetry as something more than an act committed on a page. That's right. 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 That it did That's something. Right. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because there's something. Yeah. There's something more going on with and that. And it's 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 go. Yeah, go I'd like I'd like go. to address it too because I think one of the, one of the things that's important, the the way I've come to understand Miss Brooks is that there was a generosity of her spirit right. that superseded everything. You know, mm-hmm. the the her gift of observation and her ability to put it into language. Um, was certainly important. There was a reportage of a time and a place that she represented mm-hmm. in her work. But she also, her love of language and her love of people to right. share language with. Right. I, I've heard of more than one occasion when she was already an elder and doing bo- uh, doing a tour and sitting for more than two hours to make sure she signed everybody's book and mm-hmm. spoke to them. Mm-hmm. You know, was, she was at Onondaga Community College probably late in her life, last mm-hmm. few years of her mm-hmm. life, three hours she sat signing books after her reading wow. and talking to every single student. And she was elderly, but it, it was more important for her to connect. And what I also see in that a generosity of spirit was her ability to take a circumstance in time and place in our culture and make it like hit on the universals. So we may have timestamps that, oh, yeah, that poem illustrates the 1940s mm-hmm. or this is the 1960s. But the relevance of her work, both in the craft of how well she does it, how she will take traditional, um, the traditional canon and then mess with the syntax. Right. And then, like, slip right back into the canon again, you know, and right. just like, boop, boop, boop. She's, she's you know, like slaloming through the world of poetry. You guys are all going to look at me like I'm, you know, a madman here, but— one poet I identify her with a great deal is Auden. Hmm. No, right? that doesn't surprise yeah. me at all. No. You know, that, that she understands that syntax, the colloquial, right. the way the common right. people speak, and then can mix it and put it back out there in a way that is um, formally interesting and engaged, mm-hmm. but also just opens doors. Right, right, right. right. Um, and she's still completely relevant. I I haven't read a poem yet that doesn't address what she was addressing in her times because she she lived a very long life. What she was addressing in time is things that she was recognizing and bringing to us, like through telescopes to take a look at, you know. We're we're faced with the exact same things today, mm-hmm. which you know when we talk about specific work, the the things the the social issues that she was addressing, but she was addressing them before it was necessarily safe to address right. them too, well, yeah. particularly you know, like she, the mother, right? And yeah, the, and the poem, yeah, that wonderful poem. And you know there are a couple of stories I I want to share about uh, about what you all are um, what we're discussing at the moment. Um, one is that. Um, you know, she won. She she earned the Pulitzer for her second book for Annie Allen. Annie right? Allen, and yes. Annie Allen is a book lifting uh, the life of an ordinary light skinned uh, black girl child from the South Side of Shy to epic proportions. Right, yeah. the whole book is about. I mean, it's, so even the construct in and of itself is political, right, and social, right. A black girl's lives from the hood, you know, worthy of our taking this look at in this way via this lens, and. Um, when she submitted the manuscript to Harper and Rowe, her editor was unsure. 
uh, about it. And so the editor had it sent to some other major poets of the of the day. And one of them said, eh. one of them said no. And Richard Wright said, okay. And Richard Wright is the person who shepherded the deal with Harper and Rowe to begin okay. with. And so uh, Richard Wright said, yeah, I think we sh- you should go ahead and take a chance on this. You know, I think this could work. So our editor went back, you know, to her people at Harper and Rowe. They said, okay, but we're going to give you uh, a smaller advance <laughs> than you received for a street in Bronzeville, a street in Bronzeville, overtly, very overtly, the uh, life of the African American, the African American experience in Chicago, South Side, grit, a little more gritty, a little more, um, a little more angry in some ways, uh, but very much um, specifically uh, language that speaks to a, a, a grittier African American life on the South Side of Shy. So um, Annie Allen loftier language you know she got dinged a lot for for this wordplay um for uh, esoteric and abstract language that was just ornamentation versus message right um so they gave her a hundred dollars they gave her half as much money for annie allen as an advance as they gave her for street in bronzeville her first book and then it won the pulitzer prize right (laughs) and then it won the pulitzer prize so there's that. And then the, the second one about the mother, right, is that and I'm sure we'll talk more about the mother later. But um, folks from both sides of the argument regarding abortion and legalizing abortion offered her large sums of money mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. for permission to reprint language from that poem which you could find verse from the poem that could support either side of the argument, right? She refused to accept money, and she received large offers, big money, to uh, for permission to reprint. And she, the poem was, was only reprinted in academic text mm-hmm. and on occasion, you know, some trade anthologies. But she never took the money, right, because she wrote the poem to represent the experience of a real woman who has gone through this real thing before it was really ever even the conversation of being legalized and safe, right? And she, uh, the editor, uh, her editor Harper and Rowe asked Richard Wright to ask Miss Brooks to remove the mother from A Street in Bronzeville, to remove the poem. Now think about that, poets, from her first book with a major New York publisher. She was asked by a major writer who was her her guide Mm. to remove this book, this poem from the manuscript. And Miss Brooks, five foot of nothing, south side of shy, never (laughs) published, I mean, published in Poetry Magazine, but not a full length. It's her first book. Says, poem stays or I walk. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? She claimed her book. It was her book. It wasn't theirs. Right. She yeah. claimed her space. Right. Yeah. And uh, that's, she, I like to think of her as a, a mighty human in a, in, in a very small package. She, <laughs> but think of a first poet right now, right. You know, first book poet right now who would do that. Not, not, not very many. Not very no. few. Very few. Right. Right. Not very many. Very I wonder if we might talk 
about a poem of hers that's been much discussed and much anthologized. We real cool. So I was thinking about what you talked about earlier with, with some folks saying, well, she's dumbed down her poetry. Right. And there is a clear difference in, in language, if you will. So could you talk about that poem a little bit and, and what it, uh, clearly it, it had a, a, an extraordinary resonance sure. a, 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 across a, an awful lot of folks. Oh, yeah. D- did oh, yeah. she see it that same way? Did she love that poem? Was that a poem that's... Oh, she grew to hate that poem. Yeah. <laughs> she, she absolutely hated that poem. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, um, I don't know, what would be the, co- the comparable like Rolling Stones song that every, you must hear? Satisfaction? Like every time the Rolling Stones well, do a concert, they got to hear Satisfaction or something, yeah, no, you know? I would, I she would, grew to hate it. I would again say like Auden, you know, yeah. I mean, his, uh, his September 1, 1939. Yeah, right. Um, you know, we must love each other mm-hmm. or uh, or die. Or die. Yeah. Right. And uh, you know that poem became uh, a mega hit in poetry That's land. Right. And Auden grew to hate the poem yep. in part because he felt it was dishonest. Yeah. Well. You know? Yeah. And, yeah. Um, I could see that. You know, I think that happens to poets that something becomes a mega hit, and then you 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 wonder, well, gee, you know, it it is a little more complicated than this poem suggests. Right. 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 Yeah. Or you're chained to that. You're you're chained to that one piece, and so many others. So many others are dismissed mm-hmm. because that one piece. I'll is bet there, William but, Carlos Williams grew to hate white chickens. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he did. I'm and, sure he didn't like the, the wheelbarrow, wheelbarrow yeah. so much. Yeah. <laughs> but can can Go I ahead. say something about yeah. it? As sure. Because if if we think about we real cool, that's 1953. I think was publication yeah. date because yeah. it's the same yeah. age I am. So 21 words. That's, that creates a complete short story. I mean, first of all, it, mm. it's flash short story. With mm. with before the genre was ever conceived, right? right. Yeah. You know, and twenty one words conveys, you know, an element of malaise in youth that continues to this day. It it conveys social a myriad of social issues. It is a stunning use of single. It the whole poem is single syllables. Yeah. That's right. So there's a the, there's a simplicity, the, this idea that that simple is not thought out in mm-hmm. in with po- with coming back to that that idea. You know the the simplest poems. I mean, Basho kind of had a good career in the haiku <laughs> thing, right? right? You don't need a lot of words to make a huge statement, and that the upside of the poem, outside of the fact that if I if I had to read it every single time I showed up and it popped up everywhere and people, oh, I love We Real Cool mm-hmm. when there's this whole body of work. It would have annoyed me too, but it's a gateway into her brilliance. Yeah, yeah. And it it's still relevant. Yeah. 62 years later, it's still relevant. Right. Um, and yeah, and let me tell you about the, a bit about the origin of the poem, and then I want to speak to that, uh, what Georgia just mentioned on a, from a personal level. Miss um, Brooks never, you know, she did not drive. She hated airplanes. She so she did not take airplanes. She was very fearful of them. So um, when she how she traveled around the city was via public transportation, like everyone else. Here you again, a Pulitzer Prize winner on the CTA next to you and me, right? And so she'd get off the bus at 75th and Cottage Grove and walk to her home at 74th and Evans, a block and a half or so away. And she'd pass this place called Blaylock's The Golden Shovel which was a pool hall and a um, bar. And she'd see young people who should have been in school hanging out, right? A crew, squad, gang before, you know, not in the same ways that we know them today. But a crew, young people hanging out, not doing um, apparently much to the positive, right? 
And so she'd see them in this bar when she got off the bus there after leaving probably the Mecca in that period. Uh, she worked in the Mecca building, which is another famous poem of hers. And so she wrote the poem about them hanging out in this pool hall instead of instead of doing anything positive or constructive. Um, now, when I was growing up in Enid, Oklahoma, falling in love with 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 language um, in third grade, but by the time I got to eighth grade, right, this other this other thing was happening. Um, in, with language that changed my life and changed the conversation, and it was called hip hop, right? Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, sure. and so I'm being I'm 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 in eighth grade, um, being introduced to Miss Brooks's work while trying to memorize all of the lyrics to Rapper's Delight, right? Because it's happening seventy nine. Mm -hmm. It's yep. happening. It's, these, hit, it's, it's the same time. Yep. Right. Hip hop was born in seventy six, but I'm I'm in Oklahoma, right? So it took him a little while to get there. <laughs> no, you know I, just, what I'm saying? You know, I, I remember so, riding a bus at the University of <laughs> Iowa in nineteen seventy eight, right, and hearing hip hop for the first time, and thinking, wow, yeah, this is big, yeah, yeah, you know, and, and it changed. And I for mean, and for those of us who were already in love with sound and language, yeah, yeah. you know, I'm the youngest of six, and so I grew up. Um, in a house, being able to sing Earth, Wind, and Fire lyrics and Stevie Wonder lyrics before I even knew how to spell the words, right? Yep. Um, and so by the time I got to um, to eighth grade, and I'm being introduced to Miss Brooks's poetry and that poem in particular, while I'm starting to understand this new art that's changing my whole way of thinking and seeing called hip hop. Yep. That's what resonated for me so much about that that poem in particular, right? Is it rhymes, but it but 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 the rhymes are are are, are off. It's a little slant. Mm -hmm. um, the rhythm is there, but it's it, and and but it, again, it's so ahead of its time. But then, right on time, right, and still on time, right now. And um, forecasting a trend. And forecast, yeah, very much so, right. Mm -hmm. I mean, she was using words like "fly," you know, in poems in her first book that came back around, right? Yeah. Her reading of that poem is is um, uh, is extraordinary. It's yes, not, it is. It's it's different to the ear than it is to the eye. Right, right. Um, I, that's intentional, right? Or yeah, because she's emphasizing, you know, because the each line except for the last ends with we, and that we is a that's a that's a a hell of a we at the end of those lines, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Because we are all implicated, right? We are all we are all involved. There's no way to escape that we, right? It's good no. stuff. Is there anybody that you would point to today who you would consider to be a natural successor to the kind of work she was doing or to her work? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Um, what do you all think? I think there are a lot of people who would want to claim that. That's what I was going to say, but it sounds better coming out of your mouth than mine. I think there's a lot of people who want to claim the title, and certainly, you know, she... If you read her as a student, and a, there was one, there was one time Koresh brought his folder from the last seminar that he took with her. She had no problem bleeding red ink all over those right. poems. But you could sit down with one in her comments to the young poet that Q was at the time, and there, it's like it's like going to church and going to going to class at the same time. Right. You know uh, how much you can learn about the choice you make word by word. Um, I think there are a lot of talented people who would like 
who would like to have us remember their influence by her? Mm -hmm. I would say Claudia Rankin. You would? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think her her book, Citizen, right, is in political, shrewd, palimpsestic, right, that the lines mm-hmm. carry uh, sure. many layers of sig- signification. I don't know her personally, sure. so I don't know that she does the kind of outreach and, uh, you know, kind of neighborhood building. Sure. Um, because we all know poets who do that work, and then there are poets who don't, right? That's correct. Yeah, so I can't speak to that. Mm-hmm. But I would say also in terms of, and I could be wrong, so I mean, uh, I also thought Walter Mondale would beat Ronald Reagan. So, <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, the uh, last time you were wrong. <laughs> the, uh, but the, the the reception of the book too has been very wide and very that's true, very um, yeah. very appreciative. So that's all. Yeah. No, I I sense your hesitation. Uh, you do. <laughs> Should I do I have to go under the table? <laughs> you don't. I just have to watch my tongue. No, you're fine. So. So assume the position. <laughs> so this might be a good place to sort of pause. Is there anything anybody wants to add to this part of our conversation? Georgia, Steve, Q? Well, no, I don't think so right now. I'll get back to you on it. Right. <laughs> uh, we've, we've reached the end of this first program on Gwendolyn Brooks, but not the end of the podcast. At this point, we invite our poets to talk about poems or issues or events of significance or importance or interest or something that they'd like to share with our listeners. Georgia? Well, I think in in keeping with the, the uh, conversation, Koresh is involved. He'll share more of some of the things he's involved around the centennial efforts in commemorating Miss Brooks in Chicago and throughout the nation. Seven, 2017 is her centennial year. But we um, are embarking on this uh, anthology that is being will be coming out with Haymarket books in the spring of 2017 and essays that address Gwendolyn Brooks and her impact on poets both personally and globally. Uh, and it's really exciting to have the occasion to immerse in her work and then now how people respond to it. Mm-hmm. So the, that the fact that we're starting this project and working on it while Q is here to really anchor in is is very exciting for me, and I consider it a great opportunity to grow myself as a poet because uh, I too refuse complacency. So that's you know we've got this book coming out in about a year and a half. Let's keep revisiting that as we go through podcasts, right? Mm-hmm. As you progress along this, because I mm-hmm. want to keep it in front of our listeners and frankly in front of ourselves too. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. thanks, wonderful, Bob. thank you, Steve. I've been thinking a lot about the kernel that is under our tongue in mm. poems. Mm. There's a there's a seed under there. Mm. Uh, and uh, the other day I got to thinking about an old Yiddish word, tsuris, T-S-U-R-I-S. It, mm-hmm. it means uh, misfortune. Okay. And, uh, you know, so uh, in the old world it would be, you know, lice and gnats and... Mm-hmm. Um, Weevils and right. the sudden storm and sure. Um, so I got to thinking about surus and surus notes in poems, hmm. and uh, and then I discovered this little this poem by the Israeli poet Yehuda Amikai. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a longer poem, and I won't read the whole thing. But here are just a couple of stanzas 
from a poem of his called Memorial Day. Mm -hmm. Memorial Day. Bitter salt is dressed up as a little girl with flowers. The streets are cordoned off with ropes for the marching together of the living and the dead. Children with a grief not their own march slowly, like stepping over broken glass. Mm. The flautist's mouth will stay like that for many days. A dead soldier swims above little heads with the swimming movements of the dead, with the ancient error the dead have about the place of the living water. So I think poetry continues to speak to us deep in our hearts where the soul does its work, especially in um, dishonest political times. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, there's a terrible fatuousness to jingoism and right. the rush to violence. Uh, and uh, that's been occupying me as it occupies all poets, I think. And mm -hmm. uh, I encountered those lines by, by uh, Amikai and was struck um, by an ancient sadness yeah. that we have to honor and give voice to all the time. That yeah, that's part yeah. of the work of poetry. It sure is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Wow. Thank you for that. That's wonderful. Yeah. Q, anything you want to bring in? Oh, I think we should end on that. <laughs> that was beautiful. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna mention a. Uh, a, a poem that I was actually at Iowa, a poet I was at Iowa with, Larry Levis, mm has -hmm. just had another posthumous book come out mm -hmm. called The Darkening Trapeze. Right. It's a quite extraordinary book, but the last poem in the book is a poem called God is Always 17. It's a long poem, so I won't read the whole thing, but there's one piece of it that strikes me as being so central to how Levis constructed his poems and wrote in his poems and his vision in his poems in the last part of his life mm -hmm. from the, the book of Elegies right. and, uh, and the Darkening Trapeze. So let me read a little bit of this. Um, this is taking place in a bar. There's just been an accident outside, a, quote, sickening crunch, uh, in which nobody goes out to check on it. But a guy is telling a story in the bar. This is Levis. This is the poem now. I guess the guy had evidently done some time, though everyone listening was too polite to bring it up. And what happened in it was a clerk bleeding to death at a 7-Eleven, and the guy telling it called 911 for an ambulance, and the police found both cash from the till and the gun on him when they arrived. He didn't think he'd shot anyone that night or anyone ever, and was surprised and puzzled when they made a match on the gun. The clerk lived to testify, and they convicted him. No one along the bar said anything when he'd finished telling it, and the night went on enlarging in the story, and I think our silence cut him loose and let him go falling. And one by one, we paid and got up and left and went out under the stars. Yeah. Now, that's an incident from there. And yeah. what struck me about that in terms of Levis is that sense of guilt for an event that you simply cannot remember having done yourself in a world in which accidents take place right. outside your safe space and no one goes out to check that's because right. that's how you expect life to be. Yeah. I think the whole book yeah, is extraordinary brilliant. and that poem is extraordinary. That's brilliant. Uh, with that, this is the Talk About Poetry podcast sponsored by Nine Mile Magazine and Nine Mile Books. 
We hope you've enjoyed this production. Our music is by Bob Perry, an Emmy Award-winning musician who lives and works in Syracuse, New York. Production is by Patrick McDougall at the World Harmony Studios. Thanks to all of you.